Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. In this episode, I will be speaking with architect and educator Mark Pasnick on his co-authored book, Heroic, Concrete Architecture and the New Boston. The conversation will explore the post-war architectural movement, commonly referred to as brutalism, and the groundbreaking concrete structures that reimagined the city of Boston during the 1960s and 70s. But before beginning the conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Mark Pasnick is a professor of architecture at Wentworth Institute of Technology and a founding principal of the architecture and design firm Over Under. He has co-authored the book Heroic, Concrete Architecture in the New Boston with Michael Kubo and Chris Grimley and edited the books Henry Cobb, Words and Works from 1948 to 2018 and Justice is Beauty on the work of the Mass Design Group. Mark has received the AIA Young Architects Award and recognition for his scholarship from the Graham Foundation, Docomomo US, the Boston Preservation Alliance, and the Boston Society of Architects. He has taught previously at the California College of the Arts, Carnegie Mellon, Harvard University, Northeastern, and the Rhode Island School of Design. And in addition to his scholarly work, Mark maintains an active professional practice with projects including a conservation management plan for the Boston City Hall and adaptive reuse projects for athletic facilities at the University of Massachusetts. Mark serves as the chair of the Boston Art Commission and was recently selected as an Out 100 honoree, a designation which recognizes culture-shifting impact by members of the LGBTQ community. Welcome to On Cities, Mark. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, Carrie. It's great to be here. Mark, I often begin the conversations by asking my guests where they grew up, because I'm interested in knowing if those formative experiences shape their thoughts about the city or the world. So, Mark, where did you grow up? And how did that experience uh, shape your thoughts about the city? Uh, well, I'm actually a suburban boy, so uh, not exactly what you would expect for somebody who loves cities so much. But I grew up about an hour west of Manhattan. In fact, from my grandmother's house, you could see the top of the World Trade Center uh, when I was growing up, right when it was new. Um, and my grandfather was a builder, built houses uh, from the Depression up until the late 70s. Um, so uh, I spent a lot of time in his mill workshop and also uh, visiting houses. My mother, I later found out in life, my mother had wanted to be an architect, but told was told it wasn't a profession for a woman at the time that she was considering it. Uh, so we ended up on Sundays, I was going into houses. She knew how to break into houses uh, and we would do little tours of construction sites. Um, so the, I think there were some early things that did get me into architecture, maybe not so much the city side. 
Um, and the other thing in retrospect, I realized both the World Trade Center being under construction when I was a, you know, a very small child and just opening. I remember going there and that's sort of a big modernist building uh, in my, early in my memory uh, in terms of the work I do now. Uh, and then also in my town, it was a town called Basking Ridge, uh, AT&T opened its headquarters uh, while I was uh, young. And I remember going for a tour of the building uh, and it was sort of a, uh, it was by a Philadelphia architect, Vincent Kling, um, and had a lot of concrete surfaces in it. Uh, but was a kind of softer modernism, I would say, a, a kind of campus modernism that recalled some of the Dutch models as well as a kind of mega structure because it was so huge. So I remember some of these things as a child sort of emerged and maybe led me to think about architecture and, and in particular, in retrospect, a little bit about brutalism as well. I love that story. And actually, you're not the first person um, that I've interviewed that has grown up within, let's say, eyeshot of a metropolis and how that pool of that image, you know, would come to shape, you know, the future decisions of their lives. So thank thank you for sharing that. Um, so let, let's just turn to your wonderful book, Heroic, Concrete Architecture and the New Boston. Uh, in the bookmark, you referred to the post-war concrete buildings that were built in Boston and really throughout America as heroic, rather than the more commonly used term of brutalism or brutalist architecture. So before delving into the motivations for this, I was hoping that you could describe to our listeners the origins of the term brutalist architecture. Sure. Um, and it is actually a complicated set of origin stories. Um, there's several different stories. Most people, I think, attribute it to the work of the French-Swiss architect Le Corbusier, a very important modernist architect who in the 40s and 50s built a number of large-scale structures in France out of raw concrete. Um, and the French term is beton brut, so raw concrete. Um, that was a phrase that was used around these buildings. And, and I think there were a lot of factors behind the rawness of the concrete that was very rough. In fact, there's a letter that we unearthed uh, that Michael Kubo, my co-author unearthed, uh, talks about the massacre of concrete on the site uh, that Le Corbusier writes about, and that there was no way to control it. So he just let it be. And that rawness of the concrete and its and its you know state of how it was produced became a kind of image of honesty that was adopted by others and picked up by especially Rainer Banham in the United Kingdom um, and uh, a husband and wife team of architects, Allison and Peter Smithson, who uh, developed uh, a, a kind of approach to architecture is based on an ethic that had to do with the kind of material honesty, expression of structure, uh, and a kind of memorable image. These are the terms that Rainer Banham sort of framed it as. So that's one of the origin stories. There's others too in, uh, for the actual phrase uh, brutalism. Um, uh, Peter Smithson's nickname was Brutus and his wife's name was Allison and brutalism. You can see brut. Al, so there's a kind of idea that maybe it was coined partly be from their names. Um, there was also the art movement called Art Brute, which is a kind of art movement that had some parallel ideas. And there were a number of other origin stories. So when we think of brutalism, we think of a very negative term. Uh, but the reality was it was a term that was trying to engage in maybe rawness and honesty around construction, and especially in the UK at a time where in the 50s, remember, London was still rebuilding from the war. There were still vast areas of the city that had been decimated and had not been rebuilt. Um, and so this, should architecture be 
happy and uh, 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 sort of portraying a picture of a society that didn't exist at the time, or should it be a kind of honest and raw expression as art would do? So, and I think that brutalism grew out of that desire uh, to have a kind of honest expression that was appropriate to the times in the UK. Uh, and so the movement was called the new brutalism um, in those origin stories. So then let's turn to then the original question. You don't use the word brutalism. You use the word heroic. Why? So uh, that's also, I think, uh, a complicated story, but has a lot of different uh, readings to us. First of all, there's the negative term of, of brutalism. Uh, you know, it just sounds like something mean-spirited or negative or bad when it was never meant to be that. Uh, and in fact, what's interesting is that we have a lot of association between brutalism and concrete, uh, but the original, the very first building that um, Rainer Bannum points out as a brutalist structure is actually a glass and steel and brick building by the Smithsons, that husband and wife team I mentioned earlier. Uh, and it's a, a building that had what they thought of as an ethic rather than aesthetic. It was really about the way of seeing materials for their raw status. Um, this is, again, in the UK, uh, and the language there, I think, is appropriate to the time of the 50s. When when it moves, when brutalism moves to the United States, it moves to the US in the 60s at a time of great prosperity in America. America is undergoing, you know, its, its vast expansion in population. It's undergoing a great economic uh, growth and also particularly a growth in the government sector. Remember, this is the era of President Kennedy and Johnson's programs like the New Frontiers and the Great Society, a vast amount of investment in cities, and uh, many of which were troubled at the time, but uh, there was a vast amount of uh, investment in cities and buildings for government. And it seemed like there was a desire to have a new language uh, for those buildings. So for us, um, Brutalism is really about a connection to the history of London and the UK at a time of difficulty, whereas we use the term heroic because it brings in this aspect of a kind of civic aspiration that was really the motivation behind a lot of these buildings. These were buildings that were meant to represent the civic realm through bold and powerful architecture using a new material. Uh, we also talked with a lot of architects. Uh, most of our research is focused, uh, Chris, Michael, and I, our research is focused around Boston's architecture, but we talked about two architects from all over who worked in Boston, uh, and almost all of them disavowed the term brutalism for their concrete buildings. They felt that it wasn't a correct uh, moniker for their buildings. So, so we instituted this idea that heroic could be the new name. And heroic actually has a double origin. Uh, the Smithsons wrote a book called The Heroic Era of Architecture. They were referring back to early modernism as though it was heroic and, and major. And so since they're the big proponents of this uh, brutalist movement, we thought, well, there's a good term. But on the other hand, um, following that, uh, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, who are kind of the, let's say, the critics of the modern movement, called for... Uh, it's a long story, but they called for ugly and ordinary architecture instead of ho heroic and original architecture. They sort of debased and criticized this striving towards heroism in the modern period. So for us, brutalism is always negative in its overtones, whereas heroic has this dual duality. It has a kind of aspirations that are good, but always a fatal flaw to every Greek hero. Um, and so for us, the term we felt could 
better encapsulate the American experience um, that these buildings underwent. And especially, I would say that they were almost always exclusively concrete buildings in the United States. There are a few examples that uh, uh, there's a building, for instance, at Harvard, that's a brick building that I would describe as brutalist. But most of it was a kind of aesthetic uh, uh, and ethic uh, related to a, a different sensibility and one that was about you know, a positive view of government as the welfare state that would support us and that deserved as a collective building of government building deserved a kind of power and um, presence that much of the architecture of the 1950s couldn't offer. Mm. I'll say one one more thing on that regard. Heroic is sort of partly, you know, for us, again, it, it connects to this civic mindedness, um, but it also expresses a reaction in the 60s to the predominant international style modernism, which if you think of international style modern buildings are often glass and steel, they're often very thin, lightweight corporate structures, uh, and they were everywhere in the world. Uh, and architects in the 60s who were building for the government wanted to do something that was different from this predominant style to reflect the values of uh, you know something that would be long-term Right, a very heavy building that wouldn't just, you know, be taken apart in a few years, but in fact would represent the civic realm through a kind of monumentality of the architecture. Mm. For us, that combination of things meant that maybe a new term was a better term for the American scene and also for the optimism and uh, democratic ideals of this architecture. Yeah, and also I think that more uh, varied uh, term I think could also. Um... I think it's explicit in the sense that currently I think that these buildings are making a comeback um, for a number of reasons, which I think we can talk about um, as we continue the conversation. Um, and really, even though the book, let's say, concentrates on Boston, this was a national movement. And and many of the things that we're discussing could be really applied to numerous cities throughout the country. But um, your book really traces how Boston's era of concrete modernist architecture, which, as you state, began um, in the 1960s, but specifically with the arrival of Ed Logue to the Boston Redevelopment Authority. So can you describe Logue's role in the transformation of the city? Uh, yes, it was a major role. And if you, again, we look at the book Heroic as, you know, we initially thought maybe we should just do a nationwide book on brutalism. Uh, but we decided to stay more focused and see Boston as a lens to many other places, um, that we could do a deeper study on Boston than we could on the whole country. Uh, but there's many parallel issues that are happening. And so, you know, bringing in Logue to the city was an attempt to um, transform Boston from what was a pretty a city in a pretty terrible state. So it was shrinking. It was losing population very quickly in the 50s. Uh, it had the highest property taxes in the nation prior to Logue's arrival because there were so few people supporting so much infrastructure. Um, and there was almost no investment. I often in lectures show an image from 1964 of Boston. There's two remarkable things. How much of it is under construction in 1964, and how few tall buildings there are in 1964. It was a, a city that had been almost untouched by investment over the course of several decades. Um, and so it was really in a terrible state. And Logue was brought in by one of the reformist mayors, uh, uh, John Collins, 
who brought him in to try to right the ship in Boston. Boston went through decades of corruption, and so nobody wanted to invest in the city as a consequence of that corrupt period. Um, Hines, the mayor before Collins, I think sort of set the ship in the right direction. And then Collins really came in under a reform agenda. Uh, the subtitle of our book is uh, about the new Boston. And this was a campaign phrase from Collins' campaign. He wanted to create a new Boston, one that was no longer corrupt, one that was no longer unworthy of investment, but a kind of new vision for the city. And he brought in Logue precisely because Logue had done much of this in New Haven. He had brought in an enormous amount of federal do dollars to remake New Haven. Uh, we can see you know, the consequences of some of those that have in some cases been positive and in some cases uh, terribly negative. Uh, but he was brought in as an effective uh, person to help change the city. He ran what was known as the Boston Redevelopment Authority at the time, uh, and he merged both planning and economic development into one agency. He insisted he wouldn't take the job unless those two things were merged together. Um, and so he had a lot of power at his hands to remake the city. One of the worst examples of this remaking, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about urban renewal as we move along, is what's known as the West End uh, of Boston, which was demolished and a vast number of people were displaced in that process, a really horrific moment in urban uh, uh, thinking. Uh, but Logue arrived after that, and he felt that, that he also saw that as a problematic strategy, and he went about what he called planning with the people. Um, I don't think any of us today would have thought people were there that very involved, but he did see the value in engaging neighborhoods about their own future uh, at the same time that he was pretty heavy handed about the development of the city. So we have some, you know, we have a city that was desperate for change um, and that absolutely needed change uh, and probably techniques. Well, I shouldn't say probably, but techniques that definitely overreached in their effort. But I like as a historian to go back and to understand the mindset of those who made those decisions and understanding how terrible a city Boston was at that time, how difficult, how many problems it had. And it's a city that could have kept on uh, kept in decline, but it's a city that really turned around in part because of this urban renewal period. It was something that as one of the um, jurors from the Boston City Hall competition said, um, this moment of government center remaking the center of the city uh, was a rebirth of confidence in the city. And I think that's very much a factor. Hmm. I mean, in listening to you uh, describe Logue, I, I think what you're trying to say is you have to understand the man within the context of the era, right? And the decisions that he's making, which, you know, in some cases, I think politically were um, very, very successful. And in other cases, let's say urbanistically, may have been flawed, in fact, particularly in hindsight from our perspective. Um, but nevertheless, I think that I would, you need to... a book. I would recommend a book. Lisbeth Cohen wrote a book on him. So he's a similar figure, uh, let's say, to in New York. Uh, we have a character that runs things there. Uh, 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 but he's a more complicated figure, and I think he's more altruistic. In fact, one of the outcomes of this period is quite a lot of affordable housing that exists in our city, city still today. Uh, and that is the only parts of our city which tend to be diverse. Um, and so, you know, urban renewal gets almost exclusively a negative rap. But I do think that there were some things that were good about urban renewal and that we have a more balanced city in terms of people living in the core of downtown Boston because of this period as well. 
Well, maybe we could delve into that a little bit more because your book demonstrates an admiration for the buildings of this period. Um, but it also reveals the destructive role that federal government played in promoting policies for urban renewal following World War II. And as you mentioned, the term urban renewal is deceptive because many of these federal policies were indeed anti-urban in the end, and they were about clearing historic neighborhoods and replacing them with, let's say, detached housing towers and highways. And this land clearance in large part permitted the development of many of the projects that you highlight in the book. So Mark, I'm curious, how do you reconcile your admiration for these individual buildings with a valid critique of the flawed urban policies that sets the stage for their creation? Well, I think that we uh, we understand their complicity, perhaps, uh, on some levels. And again, I'm not here to judge the period. Uh, I'm here to kind of like unearth the facts about it. And uh, one thing is that I, I I think people don't understand the nuances of urban renewal. And I, I'm not trying to be an apologist here for urban renewal. I think it's disastrous in many ways. But I also think it was an effective tool for helping write a city that was really struggling. Um, and so there are moments where it's very good. And I would say, you know, again, the housing policies, although architecturally, I take a lot of exceptions to them. They tend to be towers in the garden. Um, uh, they have had a better impact on our city than the market has. The market has uh, really segregated cities and Boston is not unique in this. You can look at New York City and Manhattan, it's quite segregated in terms of where um, different economic classes can live. Uh, the center of Manhattan is all you know, white and wealthy and the perimeters where there was urban renewal housing projects is where you get diversity. So uh, we see this in a lot of American cities that were uh, going through this urban renewal period. And I'm not saying that this is, again, I'm not saying that urban renewal was a great thing. I definitely don't think it was. Uh, but I can also understand the complexities of why it was the way it was. And I can understand that there were some outcomes that have been better than the marketplace at responding to the needs of all citizens. Logue himself was really, he was kind of an idealist. He was kind of uh, somebody who was looking to improve the lives of all citizens of Boston, not just the wealthy. Now, on the other hand, I think that politically disenfranchised had very little hand in the remaking of the city. And therefore, what tends to happen is that poor neighborhoods tend to get demolished or tend to get changed or highways tend to run through them or other kinds of things. So uh, certainly it's a, there's, there is some, uh, there's many demons within urban renewal, but I, as a historian, my job is to try to understand all of these factors and how they relate to one another. And, and perhaps to understand some of the things that came out of them. For me as an architect, uh, less as a historian, but as an architect, I think one of the wonderful things that came out of this period is a body of buildings. Uh, if, if cities were museums of architecture, Boston would have the finest collection of concrete modern buildings in America, uh, hands down. There's no place with as great a collection of concrete buildings in such small a space. Uh, so that is one of the maybe positive things of this era uh, which is a rife era. And, and and lastly, as a historian, I find this era particularly interesting and I find urban renewal particularly interesting because of the complexities of these questions, because of how complicated and dramatic and challenging a time it was. It makes amazing history. It makes something that's interesting to learn from and to perhaps even bring some values out of. 
I, for one, think that we do not invest nearly enough in cities. And this was a time when investment was fairly strong in cities. Um, and, and secondly, I think we don't do enough planning uh, at the larger scale in our cities today. This was a time where there was obviously overreach in planning, but I think we may have lost, uh, uh, you know, the opposition to urban renewal has caused urban planning to be uh, maybe too uh, uh, too shy or something. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, I think we've reacted in the opposite direction because of the negative impacts of urban renewal. We've sort of swung the pendulum so far away from centralized planning that we've we've lost uh, something that I think is of value to cities in the future, especially cities that have to face things like climate crisis and uh, other kinds of housing costs and other things that require centralized action. Hmm. Yeah, you, you, I mean, there's a lot. We could probably dedicate an entire um, conversation about urban renewal, but as I hear you um, describe it, um, I also think about, um, and I think we're going to get into this, about um, there's typically controversy associated around, uh, let's say, brutal, brutalist architecture, even today, and the question of preserving this architecture that's now, you know, turning or just crossing that 50-year mark is quite contentious in most cities. Um, but I think maybe we could learn something about the mistakes of urban renewal. And I, I think one of the mistakes was this kind of heavy-handed clearance of, in many cases, some fantastic urbanism, which, of course, in the case of Boston, you know, the West, we lost the West End. Um, we kept the North End largely because of Jane Jacobs, you know, and her writings. Um, but I think the argument would be to work within um, the system. And so, for example, rather than um, there are arguments to just tear these buildings down, well, rather than tearing them down, why don't we work to stitch them back together, work on the surrounding, um, you know, spaces that oftentimes isolate them from the rest of the building fabric? Because you are right. And having just recently been to Boston and walked in front of the Boston City Hall, which at first I wasn't a lover of, I have to admit. Um, I, <laughs> and so I think You're we're going to talk <laughs> I wasn't a lover, but um, but when I saw it recently, you know, I couldn't help but admire, um, you know, sort of the 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 gravitas, you know, the the sheer uh, magnitude of the kind of crafting of that building and the fact that it has been able to weather the test of time. And I think oftentimes contemporary buildings, which are built, you know, again, I'm talking to you from Miami, built thinly and cheaply and mostly out of drywall that are you know, can barely last a cycle. Um, I think there's something to be learned um, in the study of these buildings. So, you know, we're coming to the break, right? So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. But when we return, we're going to delve deeper into a number of fascinating case studies that Mark describes in the book. And we're also going to talk about his own uh, work as a practicing architect, which um, really delves into the question of uh, the preservation, adapt and adapt reuse of many of these uh, structures from uh, from the book. So uh, please do not miss the second half of the conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with architect and educator Mark Pasnick. Um, we've been talking about his fantastic book, Heroic, Concrete Architecture and the New Boston. And I think before the break, we were kind of laying the groundwork um, for the policies and the people um, and the architects to a certain degree that set the stage for um, this period uh, of brutalist architecture, which you have recoined as heroic. Um, so now I'd like to turn to some of the most interesting case studies in the bookmark and the one um, that I think was the impetus for the project, which was the making of the Boston City Hall within the larger context of the Government Center project um, in Boston. So can you tell us about this story? Sure. And uh, you mentioned that you didn't like it, but you've sort of come around to it. And I think that's a very common reaction. Um Many people don't like this building. It's been very controversial. It's a very large concrete building that's powerful. Uh, some might say looming. Uh, some might claim that it's across a windswept plaza that uh, looks barren. And it has a lot of characteristics that people don't necessarily think of as beautiful. Uh, I happen to think it's quite beautiful and one of the most beautiful and powerful buildings in the United States. I think it's certainly one of the best brutalist buildings uh, in the world. Um, and it's an interesting case study um, that I think led us to, to this whole project. Um, back in, I think, 2005 and 2006, the mayor of the time in Boston was talking about demolishing or selling the building and moving City Hall somewhere else. He was not a fan of it. Um, and uh, a group of young architects were 
put together by a, a local magazine to do proposals to change the building um, as a way to say, well, okay, we can accept that it needs to change, but let's keep it as is. I mean, there's a number of reasons to keep it. There's environmental reasons. There's also the city hall being in the center of the city is of use. Uh, and then architecturally, it's important. And it has a kind of legacy of, you know, Queen Elizabeth visited City Hall and many, uh, you know, uh, notable achievements have happened in the city's life. So it's it's an important building on many levels and worth preserving. Um, but we look for ways to change it. And, and that really started uh, my colleagues, Chris, Michael, and I looking around Boston and realizing, wait a minute, there are a lot of other concrete buildings in this city as well. Um, so it really started what we called the Heroic Project, which was, uh, you know, almost 10 years we spent preparing this book uh, and doing exhibits and other kinds of things. Uh, during that time, we grew to know Michael McKinnell quite well. Uh, he was one of the two main architects of the building um, and learned quite a lot about its history. And it's a, a pretty fascinating history. In fact, the building was uh, selected through a competition process that had 256 entries with eight finalists. Seven of the eight finalists were concrete buildings. Uh, and the, the winning scheme by Michael McKinnell and Gerhard Kalman um, was uh, selected, uh, as the jury said, for achieving great monumentality, drama, and unity. Those were the phrase uh, they, that they chose. Uh, it was controversial from the start, and there's a little story that Michael used to tell us uh, about the opening. So nobody knew. One of the reasons why it was done through a competition process was to prove that this was a new Boston, that it wasn't a bunch of cronies picking their best friends, but in fact, it was an open process uh, with an independent jury that would select the building. So the mayor went to the Museum of Fine Arts uh, for the unveiling of the building's model, Nobody knew what the building was or who had won. Everybody was gathered in the room. The model was unveiled. Uh, the mayor apparently at the time whispered in the ears of one of his uh, aides next to him. And Michael McKinnell was in the room and later asked that aide, what did the mayor say? And the mayor apparently said, what the F is that? Uh, and uh, it was kind of a moment of shock to him. He was unready for this project, but he ended up endorsing it because he really, he believed in this process and he ended up moving into the building before it was completed, before the heat was on in December in Boston at the very end of his term, because he wanted to be the first mayor to occupy the building. So he really went from exactly your, well, maybe not exactly your reaction, but from someone who did not understand it and was turned off by it to somebody who embraced it and thought of it as something, you know, worthy of a legacy for himself and for the city. Uh, and that's, I think, what our role is with Heroic, is try to not convince people that it's a beautiful building or that it's the best work of architecture in Boston, but to tell them a little bit more about the story of the building and why it is the way it is. And I think people become more interested in it over that time. There's some characteristics that I think are really powerful. Remember how I mentioned that, you know, this was an era of trying to symbolize uh, the civic realm. And the building has has that monumentality. It's very large and it's meant to be powerful. It's meant to be civic. It has very tall columns. Uh, it's all in an abstract language, but it's meant to have space and openness under it so that you could see through it and see into it. Uh, it's also symbolic of bicameral government. So there's two big chambers that kind of project out from the building. One is the city council chamber. The other is the mayor's office. So the building already tells you the functions that are inside, puts them on display, and actually 
gives a sense of uh, you know responsibility to those who occupy those offices that they are there on display to the public. So there's an idea about democracy and openness and uh, a, a kind of symbolism of civic life. All of this was done in concrete and brick, um, and the building has a very clear diagram. The lowest levels are brick. The plaza really runs into those lower levels um, so that the public is made to feel like they're really in the outdoor environment. The plaza just slips right in and you do all of your transactions on those lower levels. The middle levels are poured in place concrete and they're very robust and powerful forms. And that's where the civic symbolic spaces are. And then the top floors are made out of what we call precast concrete, which is concrete made in a factory. So it's smoother. Uh, and that's where the bureaucratic offices of government are. So you can see government through the building. It's it's shown to you. And that same kind of honesty that I talked about early on that's traditional with brutalism, the material is shown honestly, but also the program and the events and the activities of the building are uh, shown uh, in that way. So I find it to be a fascinating building. Mike, Michael uh, told us in the interview we did with him, Michael McKinnell, um, told us why they used concrete. And there were a number of reasons, some of which was to be different than the architects before them. But I always love this quote. I want to read from him. We were particularly interested in imbuing architecture with an authenticity. When you build in concrete, what you see is what you get. There's a kind of all throughness about it that I'm sure we carried to excess in City Hall. I think if we could have done it, we would have used concrete to make the light switches. Yeah. They were fascinated. They were just uh, you know, mesmerized by this material and its powerful ability to do everything for the building. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and he further went on, this isn't a building where the pattern is frozen, where if you move one detail, you ruin everything. The process of democratic government is the meaning of City Hall. It should never be finished. And for him, it was an infrastructure for many things to happen. He wanted, he and his partners wanted it to be adorned by the public and wanted many things to happen. Um, sadly, I don't think that ever really happened. And he was aware of that. He, he told us concrete is patient. It's waiting for that kind of adornment. And I think uh, it's starting, Boston City Hall is starting to get that kind of attention. The new mayor, our recently elected mayor, uh, now two years ago, Michelle Wu, uh, the first uh, woman to be elected as mayor, uh, went on record during her uh, campaign that she said um, she would fight anybody who doesn't think that this building is beautiful. So there's really been a big sea change uh, in the attitudes towards this building over time. And I've watched it. I mean, when we started this project, we felt like people were coming at us with uh, pitchforks and torches. Why would you talk about these really horrible, ugly buildings? They should all be torn down. And now people maybe don't think they're beautiful, typically, but they understand there's more complexity to their story. And they understand also that there's an economic and environmental value to maintaining and improving these buildings rather than ripping them down and starting from scratch. Yeah. And your architectural office, Mark, um, also made a proposal, has been working for the Boston City Hall. Is that correct? Um, yes. So we were part of that competition. Well, that design competition early on, but then more recently uh, we were hired by the city and by the Getty Foundation to do what's called a conservation management plan for City Hall. And one thing that's, there's a little difference between preservation and conservation. Conservation usually means you manage change into the future. You try to manage it intelligently. Preservation generally as a term is about keeping things as they are. 
Um, and so we're looking for ways, and this document, it's a 300 and something page document we developed with um, other firms uh, working with us, um, uh, suggests ways to keep this building for the future, but also to allow it to adapt and change over time um, to uh, new needs as society evolves around it. And I and think you- Michael in particular was very open. When we did the competition drawings early on, he was open to what he called younger ideas. He thought the building needed younger ideas. I'm now middle-aged, so I'm not that young, but uh, he he was open, you know, he was in his 80, late 80s. So uh, for him, I was the younger one. And younger ideas, I think he was always wanted the building to adapt and change over time. That's one of the wonderful things about it is it's designed to be an armature for change. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is the inherent uh, state of all things, of nature, of people, of cities and of buildings, you know. Um, so uh, I think he's wise to have said that. Um, but, you know, it beyond the seminal let's say, case study of the Boston City Hall, you interviewed many architects for the book. And I would highly recommend those who haven't read the book that are listening to the podcast to go out and purchase it and read it. But one of the particularly interesting conversations is with a an architect um, by the name of Mary Otis Stevens. Um, and she's a, a female architect, which was already pretty rare in, in the period, but she also seems like a very colorful figure. So tell us about her. Yes, she's amazing. Uh, I believe she's now 95, uh, but she was really a pioneer, I would say. Uh, She and her husband had a practice together. There were not a lot of women. As you remember, my mother at the same time was told, don't go into architecture. It's not for women uh, by male architects, uh, sadly. And I think she was really a pioneer of a woman who, uh, you know, didn't listen to all those people who were saying she shouldn't be a part of this profession. Um, and made a practice that I think was really a remarkable uh, practice uh, uh, with her husband. I think she was leading many of the ideas. Uh, and the work that she did was very different from Boston City Hall. So we gave her the last word in our book. She's the final interview. And it's partly because during our interview, she critiqued our whole project. She said, heroic is the wrong word. That's something that's you know overly monumental. That's driven by you know too much big thinking. And she thought of concrete architecture as being plastic and allowing for curvilinear, curvilinear surfaces. And she actually, she d- designed a series of houses where the, the concepts that she was dealing with were movement and hesitation. And she built her, she and her husband built their own house for their family in Lincoln, Massachusetts, a very rural community. Um, all built out of concrete. It's totally concrete house. I mean, it has glass in it and a few other materials, but it, uh, 95% of it is concrete. Uh, it was concrete by a company that traditionally did sidewalks and pools. Um, so she was really being explorative. And the foundations of the building were where they experimented with how the concrete could be used because that would all be underground and you wouldn't see it. So they could experiment with the formwork, the wood that would line the concrete when you pour it in. Um, And then um, by the time they got out of the ground, they had resolved all the ways that they wanted to use this concrete form with the contractor and develop these curvilinear forms and open spaces. And I would say it was as much a social project as it was an architectural project. She recounted that her children could never um, run away from an argument and slam a door because there were no doors. There was only the doors to outside and there was one bathroom door. The rest of the rooms were just all open and flowing into one another. Uh, So it was a kind of um, social experiment, I would say. And she was even highly critical of many of the, what I would say were probably the older men of the time, like Walter Gropius, who who built a very famous uh, home 
in the same town in Lincoln uh, that was a you know premier modernist building, but she said it was still a typical bourgeois house. The maid entered from the back door and the family entered from the front. She wanted to undo that. She was really a child of the 60s, I think, in terms of her thinking of opening up social issues uh, within the architectural issues as well. Um, interestingly, Michael McKinnell uh, from City Hall, uh, you know, resisted the term brutalism. He was one who sort of, um, you know, I, I, I think in at the 50th anniversary, he spoke in the words of the, the building uh, at, at a big event with the mayor there and with all sorts of uh, dignitaries gathered to celebrate 50 years of the building. He said 50 years was quite enough to be brutalist. We much prefer to be heroic. Uh, whereas Mary told to us, heroic's the wrong word. Uh, you have to rethink it. Um, uh, she disagreed with that sense of monumentality that implied and that kind of bigness of scale. She thought of actually the period as being much more about a kind of social change and the plasticity of concrete as a, a kind of a value that she wanted to channel in her work. So again, we gave her the last word because I think she, you know, she wanted us to change the title. We finally got to agree that we could use the word heroic in her mind, but we had to put a question mark after it. Uh, then she would have accepted it. So she was a fascinating, or she still is a fascinating character and one who I think, you know, I just admire uh, uh, endlessly. I mean, I, I love the fact that you included her in the book. Obviously, you know, as a practicing female architect, I think there's still a lot more that we can do um, to promote women in the field. Um, and of course, she is a pioneer, as you mentioned, but also love the fact that it, I think it reveals your generosity of spirit and having known you for a long time, uh, the fact that, you know, oftentimes people just want to write and include the things that reinforce their central ideas and aren't willing to, you know, highlight or at least bring forth the alternative arguments. And I think in highlighting her and giving her the last word, um, you're you're really confident enough in your own ideas um, to be able to put forth a, a dissenting opinion about it, or at least a broader understanding of it um, than just the title heroic. So I think it says a lot about you. And um, and obviously, I think for those that have never come across Mariota Stevens, um, I would highly recommend that you um, look at her work. So um, maybe turning to the question of the present, really, many of these buildings in the book are now just passing their 50-year mark. So Mark, um, what do you see as the greatest threats for their preservation? Or is do you feel that that's no longer the case? Well, I think the greatest threat is definitely public, the public not valuing them that highly. Uh, I do think that that's in any case of any building. My colleagues, Michael and Chris, uh, coined a term that they call the ugly valley. And it's about the a buildings uh, or a style of architecture's uh, valley uh, where it's in the lowest point of uh, public reception, typically 40 to 60 years after. The Victori Victorian architecture went through the same kind of thing and French Second Empire architecture. And brutalism is kind of the latest batch of this. I think the next batch to go through this is postmodernism. So each generation, when these buildings are, they're too old to be new and they're too new to be old, they're undervalued. And that's at the greatest, they're usually at the greatest risk of demolition. But I do think that there's changing attitudes. I think M Michelle Wu being the mayor means Boston City Hall is actually in the process of being landmarked. It's likely to become a landmark. Um, that process just started last month. Uh, but there are many other buildings um, that I think are in danger of demolition because the public doesn't value them or doesn't see them 
uh, as something valuable to retain. Um, I think there's a second argument, though, to be made that has nothing to do with architecture as a kind of profession, has everything to do with the environment. If we want to stave off climate catastrophe, we have to get better at adapting our existing buildings rather than tearing them down and starting over. The amount that we invest in building a new building never, ever equals uh, the amount that we might save uh, in the long-term efficiencies that we might create by a newer building. All of these buildings are much better at, they have so much carbon uh, sequestered in them, and they have so much embodied energy invested in them that tearing them down starts you at a really terrible place from an ecological disaster uh, point of view. So I think that, you know, maybe economics and uh, environmental concern will be one of the ways that these buildings are preserved and one of the reasons why they are. The architect Jeannie Gang from Chicago uh, wrote a wonderful piece on this particular topic, looking at brutalist buildings and saying, you know, there was a vast body of brutalist buildings built in the 60s. They're all hitting this 50-year mark. They're all in need of new investment. She sees them as creative opportunities for architects to really rethink and make them more palatable to the public and make them better while also benefiting the environmental strategies that we, that we have at, at, at our hand. Remember that the building industry is responsible for close to 50% of our environmental footprint on this planet. And so more demolition is just absolutely the wrong answer. Yeah, well, I think you're one of the architects that is taking advantage of this. I mean, really, having having uh, co-authored the book, you you in essence um, become an expert on the period, really. And um, beyond your role as an author, of course, you're also, as I mentioned earlier, a professor at Wentworth, where you do a number of design studios focused on this topic, but you're also a practicing architect. And as I understand it, your interest in the period has now crossed over into your practice. So I'm curious to know uh, what's on the boards in terms of current projects, um, maybe in Boston or, or throughout the country that is looking to tackle some of the questions that Jeannie Yan pointed out in that um, in that recent so, article. We haven't been working on too many concrete buildings, but we've been working on a lot of uh, late modern buildings, um, and in particular, one that I that's you know a sort of real uh, uh, important one to me is the Haverhill Public Library. It's a building built in the '60s. It's a beautiful diagram of a little box that got added to in the '90s with a, a postmodern addition. Um, and it's a wonderful organization uh, filled with people who are having real impact on their local community. It's a city that's going, has, you know, has struggled for many years and starting to go through a renaissance. Um, and so this small project of adapting an existing building and making it better for this community is, is incredibly rewarding for my colleagues and I. We're also working with UMass Boston on uh, many of the 1970s buildings on their site, doing programming studies. Um, and and also we're working on an athletics building right now that's just about to start construction, uh, adapting an existing structure and making it better for the people who use it every day. Uh, so I think there's a whole line of work for architects uh, in this field that has has real meaning. Again, because many of these buildings were institutional government buildings, oftentimes working on the means that you're supporting a larger community. It's, it's not that these are a bunch of concrete houses, uh, typically, but they're actually buildings that play central roles in the uh, life of the citizenry and the residents of our communities. Um, and so I think they're, uh, they're wonderful buildings to work on because not just of the architecture, but also because of those who they serve. 
Well, Mark, I think we need to have you down to Miami. Um, uh, there's quite a number of buildings from this period in Miami that are under serious threat because of the rising uh, land cost uh, or, you know, in, 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 in our cities. Studio, because my my, yeah. my uh, academic position, we look at these same kinds of buildings. We've looked at buildings by Breuer, Mar- uh, Marcel Breuer, uh, the, the Madison Park campus. In fact, that's now becoming an actual job for our office as well, looking at that same campus that we looked at with students uh, and Paul Rudolph's building downtown uh, and a number of other buildings um, where my students in my studio meet with uh, stakeholders and students from the schools. Uh, We spend time working with them uh, and then we develop proposals for how the building could change and become better. And it's, uh, it's been a pretty great experience. It opens the eyes of our students to the possibilities of engaging with real people uh, and also uh, the chance to think about how do we make existing buildings better. Well, that's a good project to collaborate on. And we're coming to the end of the interview. So I ask everybody um, in just a short, uh, maybe sentence or two, Mark, uh, I'd love to know what is your favorite city and why? Well, it's tough to pick one. I mean, some of the most magical places I've been, like Istanbul and Valparaiso and Berlin, are just such fascinating places. But I think I have to go with London, um, just because of the roots of concrete modernism. And it also has a characteristic of the two cities that I've been most closely connected to, Boston and New York. It's In my mind, it has kind of the best of both of those places, the energy and vitality of New York with the beauty and elegance of the urbanism of Boston overlapped on one another. So I'll pick that as my choice. Well, I love that answer. Mark, it was a pleasure to have you on the show and to learn about um, your work, both as an author and as a practicing architect. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. And next week, I'm going to be talking to Donald Shoup, the guru of parking in the city. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the effects of parking and parking regulations on the design of contemporary uh, American cities in particular. So do not miss what will certainly be a fascinating conversation. Thank Thanks again, Mark. It was great to connect. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 